welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Okay, welcome to uh, another show of Coffee and Conservation. Uh, I'm here with my friend, student, colleague, (laughs) Alexandra Firth. Uh, She wears many hats. Uh, and we are excited to have her on the show this morning. It's a lovely, drippy morning here in Starkville, Mississippi. Uh, but thank you for coming. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about some of her research. So how winter flooding isn't just for the birds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get into a little bit about what that is. Uh, but to start us off, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you came into your current position here at Mississippi State University. Yeah, well, currently I'm a PhD student, just finished up my master's with Dr. Baker here. Um, But I originally got my bachelor's degree in ecology from Humboldt State University, which is in Northern California, like up where the Redwoods are, so very North. Um, And after I graduated, I um, honestly didn't know what I wanted to do. And very typical. And I wasn't ready for grad school, so I decided I needed to go see the world, and uh, being a biological technician was a great way to do that. Uh, They like to pay you to live in very random places and do cool jobs, and so I ended up bopping around the U.S. for a while um, and did a stint in France, and then that turned into a whole European adventure, which was great. Um, But what happened while I was doing all these jobs um, was I kept while I was working on, um, you know, natural habitats, wild lands, we just kept being forced up against these agricultural landscapes or um, rangelands. And I started not seeing as harsh of a divide that you would think is between these two very different habitats, which got me more interested in this intersection between how natural resources and natural landscapes um, interact with are more like human manufactured landscapes, which um, led me into working on an organic farm for a while. Um, and that's where I started seeing more of a, an agro ecosystem within a farm itself. Um, and when a position popped up with uh, Dr. Baker here, looking at natural resources and agricultural landscapes, I was like, yes, that is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And here I am at Mississippi State. Yeah, that's a really, really great point, because a lot of times when people think about conservation, they think exclusively of conserving wild areas, more natural areas, where real, in reality we can do a ton of conservation on semi-natural areas, and most agricultural landscapes are semi-natural. Um, they're definitely disturbed to a large gradient, depending <laughs> on the type of farming, um, but there still are so many opportunities on those semi-natural landscapes, different than if it was just a concrete jungle. Yeah, I think it exists on a spectrum of mm-hmm. how much naturalness you have, but it never really goes away. You can't right. take the, the nature out of human. It's That's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so tell us, thinking about that, um, in respect to your research that you just wrapped up, uh, which has to do with winter flooding, 
tell our audience a little bit about what, what, what winter flooding is. Uh, so winter flooding here in Mississippi is advocated on agricultural landscapes by the Mississippi Flyway Joint Venture to create uh, wintering habitat for migratory birds. Um, and a lot of uh, producers do it for duck hunting purposes specifically, but it also can have a lot of other benefits for actual production, uh, which is what my project was really focusing on, uh, how you can use the winter flooding and these migratory birds uh, to help rice grow. Yeah, yeah, I like that um, that twist on it because if anybody listening is familiar with winter flooding, they'd probably say, well, that's not a new concept. People have been winter flooding all over the U.S. in different areas, whether it's uh, here in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley or over in California and even other countries for a long time because we know it's great waterfowl habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but your research took a little twist on it. So thinking about it from that agronomic standpoint, um, what were some of the initial objectives of your project that were different than just creating habitat? The idea was uh, that, well, let me back up for a second. It was My project was very much a case study on a very specific farm in Mississippi Delta. It was a rice farm um, that had been winter, winter flooding for about 10 years. Um, and the idea was that these birds, while they were hanging out on uh, these flooded fields during the winter, they were actually, um, well, number one, incorporating rice stubble. So um, while they were foraging for you know good habitat and food, they were essentially tilling up what would traditionally be done with a uh, machine mechanic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, tillage. And, right, tillage. <laughs> Incorporating <laughs> Lost the myself there for a second. <laughs> um, but when birds are out there, they're also going to poop a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, bird fecal matter is known to be very nutrient-rich, very rich in organic matter, um, and also have a lot of microbial activity in it, which are all things that are con- going to contribute to soil health and having healthy soil is good for crops. So the idea was that by flooding these fields and bringing in these birds and providing this habitat, you're also going to be improving your soil system and then collecting all of these nutrients, which you can then use for in the spring when you start planting. Right. Yeah. So we have all this information about the conservation benefit and now we're capturing this data related to the agronomic benefit, all, all combining to show some of these dual benefits of conservation for the environment, also for agriculture, rather than them being two separate um, endeavors. And I like the way you described that there. And it's also somewhat simplified because there's a lot of other things happening in terms of nutrient cycling. Mm-hmm. But that, that is the general gist of what, what you were looking at, which is great. Uh, and you mentioned it was a case study. So given that study area, that specific farm, uh, and the time, of course, of a master's is somewhat limited if you want to ever get a job. There are people that do <laughs> master's for a long time, but I try not to keep my students for a very long, forever. Um, uh, and then, so you've got the study area and the time are somewhat limited. And theoretically, using that sustainable agriculture approach, 
which we didn't really touch on yet. His, you, you mentioned that he was, the, the particular farmer, had been flooding the fields for about 10 years to um, capture these benefits. But he actually called his approach a very specific approach. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? The LISA approach? Yes, the LISA, or Low External Input Sustainable Agriculture, um, or uh, a type of ecological agriculture. Um, Essentially, it's just uh, adapting your system to fit the environment of your region, um, and then optimizing the use of uh, what resources you have on site, and then minimizing the changes that you have to your natural environment all while creating a, a profitable profitable crop. Um, so it's pretty simple. Uh, well, it's it sounds simple, <laughs> it sounds but simple. it takes a lot of innovation and being able to think outside of the box, um, which was really cool about our farmer because he was the only one that really saw the potential in this that I've known so far, even though there are tons of people that flood their fields. Um, right. He really takes a practical approach to it because sometimes when people hear terms like sustainable agriculture and ecological agriculture, if they're not familiar with uh, what that entails in the production system, it can seem like a very environmental approach, you know, like just an approach from an environmental standpoint. But when you break it down like that, it sounds so much more practical because low aiming for low input, capitalizing on nutrients and nutrient cycling within the system. Uh, is all linked into profitability because if you're aiming to reduce your inputs instead of our typical high input systems, which can sometimes make farming limited in its profitability because farmers have to spend so much money on those high inputs to get the same high yields. Um, It's just an interesting concept in, in capitalizing what's on the landscape. And yes, it does have benefit to the environment, but in certain scenarios, depending on what crop is being farmed in what region, it can also have um, those agronomic and those profitability benefits uh, if you're not spending as much money on inputs. You can I feel like it's really about making less work for yourself and letting <laughs> we hear that kind of nature do it for you. <laughs> yeah, that's that was kind of interesting because the farmer that was doing this were like, tell us more about what you're doing. This is like, it's really working for you. And over and over again, uh, he was just like, eh, I really just want to do a little bit less. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, you got to appreciate that because we've seen the complexity of farming and the challenges with the environment. And so it's it's kind of refreshing when someone's like, I just want to do a little bit less. Um, and, and then it's working out for him. And I feel like farming has been getting more and more technical and precise and very specific and that was the great thing about this farm too is he there was a lot of variability in what was going on on his fields but he uh he was still turning a profit and Mm -hmm. it was because he really was just letting letting it go um it wasn't extremely scientific the numbers weren't like down to the decimal point but um um yeah, it was just like this less is more concept. Yeah, and, and that can have trade-offs too because I'm sure if there are any producers listening uh, or even scientists because there's so much information around precision agriculture and putting the right nutrients in the right places at the right time for efficiency purposes and um, 
there's some trade-offs there and and probably a sweet spot of enough precision with enough of letting the natural ecosystem do its thing um, to kind of capitalize in that in that profitability sweet spot because you can get over over technical and have um, every chemical amendment that you know you could think of on the planet to turn the best yield but that doesn't always mean you're going to have the highest profit um, so trade-offs there for sure but you have to know your land and what's going on with it so right and the natural ecosystem that was there yeah yeah that so to find that sweet spot exactly so did you did you collect any economic data from your producers I did. Um, and you did have a control farm. I yes, think. I did have this conventional control rice farm that had agreed to flood fields over the winter one season. Um, and while we did see an influx of birds on those flooded fields, we didn't really see any big gains within one one year. But that's, um, you know, soil takes time. Right. Changing a system takes time. So just because we didn't really see a huge difference doesn't mean that that this concept can't be applied elsewhere. Right. I mean, Scientifically, just, that's really limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one year is definitely limited. But uh, we uh, asked our farmers to give us just a very simple rundown of how much they're spending on their inputs, like the actual planting process, and then labor, um, as well as equipment costs, and then uh, how much yield and how those, um, and what their overall net yield w- was when you, or net income was once you factored in how much it actually costs a plant. And this Lisa system, the Lisa farm, the bird farm, um, ended up having a a slightly lower yield. Mm -hmm. But when you calculated in how much less they were spending on fertilizer and working their fields, um, they ended up making about $100 more per acre than the conventional farm. Which can be pretty substantial. Pretty substantial, yeah. And just another piece of that puzzle that was seemingly you know missing before if if, uh, if environmental researchers or conservation effectiveness researchers are only capturing the environmental side we're missing out on a whole piece of the puzzle that makes practical sense to any landowner which is how does it change the agronomics of the system and how does it affect my bottom line because these are also businesses typically mm-hmm. so um, I you're think not going to convince anybody to change if they're going to lose money. Like that's right. ultimately they're not going to. Well, in in for people that don't farm, um, whatever line of business you're in, it's kind of the same. I mean, I don't farm, but I still provide for my family. And if someone is going to tell me, "Hey, you should do this for the benefit of everyone," but you're going to lose money doing it. You're gonna. You're gonna just, say, "Wait a minute." Yeah. <laughs> then I lose. Um, so I, th- I, yeah, the practicality of it and um, providing even incentives for uh, practices like that. Because I will add a caveat that winter flooding is subsidized from some extent through the farm bill through different conservation practices. Um, so is much of our different conservation practices on lands and agriculture because it's not always profitable so the the farm bill conservation programs help us helps us to subsidize that so that it is more profitable for folks to adopt different conservation practices and 
Okay, switching gears a little bit, I guess, thinking about the future uh, as we recap this project. How do you think you could expand on this research in the future? Do you have any ideas? I know we're kind of going in a different direction with your PhD research. <laughs> um, but definitely, you know, where we left off with the winter flooding. There, there are <laughs> practically infinite questions I could ask about this system because the um, – the dynamics of just this nutrient cycling is so complicated and what's actually going on there with between the birds inputting their their fecal matter into the system and then how that nitrogen and organic matter and carbon is being utilized within the fields. Um, what are you losing? What are you gaining? Can we actually um, lower your nitrogen, nitrogen fertilizer even more? Um, there's just it's very complex and uh, could ask tons of questions about that. Also, um, rice farming in general accounts for about 11% of the methane emissions and globally. So that is a concern because when you draw down your fields and you expose, you take this water off of them. That's when you have this huge flux of methane gas coming off. And so if a lot of people are suddenly flooding their fields and we're contributing even greater to these more global climate change problems, uh, that could be kind of a caveat or a drawback of this system. It should be interesting to look into if there's other ways to mitigate that or um, really just what's happening there. Although I do have one thing to say about that that, that the farmer actually pointed out to us is that the Mississippi Alluvial Valley was historically flooded during the winter. So flooding during the winter is part of the natural environment anyway. Mm -hmm. So yes, it might be contributing, but is it contributing any more than what it would have been doing anyway? Um, yeah, and I think that's a, an important point for our listeners to consider, especially if they're non, non-scientists, that there's usually not one right or wrong answer or one good or bad thing when it comes to um, uh, environmental influences of farms and um, and also how they can benefit the environment. So what you'd really need in the case of carbon cycling or nitrogen cycling or phosphorus cycling, which are, are macronutrients that are not only important to the farm system, uh, but carbon's really interlinked with um, emissions of CO2 or methane and climate change. So, you know, there's benefits or costs there, but you need a full budget. You need to not just know, you need a full budget of what's coming in and what's going out, but you also need that seasonally and over a longer period of mm -hmm. time because climate has such an impact on it. Weather has such an impact on it, just general temperature. Uh, so there's a lot of different pieces to this puzzle, and it's really dynamic. So that's what makes it even more complex to measure. <laughs> and why it would take a lot of money and a lot of time uh, to really fine-tune some of the fluxes in the system. So we, we can kind of have, we have this kind of rough estimate now of potential costs and benefits, seeing a number of different benefits, not only for the environment, but for the farmer, but there's, yes so many more questions we could ask mm -hmm. um thank you for your time today well, thank you it has been fun and i know we will we will have you back in the future thank you
As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Thank you.